Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I've really enjoyed her work from afar for so long. So it's a real privilege to have Maureen Ryan join me today. She's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and has covered the entertainment industry as a critic and reporter for three decades. She's written for EW, The New York Times, Salon, GQ, Vulture, The Chicago Tribune, and more. Prior to joining Vanity Fair, Ryan served as the chief television critic for Variety and the Huffington Post. And her new book is not pulling any punches. It is called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. Welcome, Maureen. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad that we're talking about this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. It's a wild, you know, it's always been hard to cover this industry as a critic or an opinionator or as a reporter because it's all changing so fast. And I was thinking about this, you know, as I kind of get going on the press for the book, the whole idea of someone's show or movie being disappeared. I don't think I even mentioned that in the book. I love this book because you're so angry, rightfully so. But we also know that you love this stuff. You mm -hmm. love film and TV and the things that you cover, that gives you a special place to start calling out the actual industry. Yeah, that was the balance to strike. You know, what, this was my pitch when I was literally pitching it around, which is I don't want it to be just a condemnation because, you know, we've read those juicy books and I've read those articles or kiss-offs, you know, and, and not that those streets don't contain a lot of wisdom and intelligence and smart things, but there's more to it than that. And I do come from a place of, I do love the best of the industry. And I do love that it gives creative people paychecks. You know, I just, I love that it exists. I've always been aware of the problems within it. But part of the reason I wanted to write the book was because I know so many great people who are in it. And by great, I don't mean perfect. By great, I mean accountable, evolving, smart, insightful. And that's all in addition to being creatively really, really smart and, and so good at what they do. So one of my primary motivators was I know that it can be better because I am aware of situations where it was good or great or acceptable or neutral and the work got done and everybody was fine. You know, there, it's possible to have a reasonably good, if not fun workplace, even while people are working hard. You know, I'm not like, well, everyone should work one hour a day. Mm -hmm. hours a year. You know, that's my personal wish list. But all of this is very possible. And something I come back to in the book a few times is this idea of the disembodied hand of fate. You know, like, what could we... No one could, who could have, nothing could have prevented these bad, oh, of course, though, yeah. No, I mean, these scandals that we talked about with Me Too, do we think that those just began happening in the last few years? You know, clearly this stuff has been going on since literally Hollywood was invented. You know, the Oscars, you know, part of the reason the Oscars came around was to improve the image of Hollywood and also potentially put down labor actions. And it worked. You know, the the cool thing about the invention of the Oscar ceremony is that, you know, after that point, there was no more labor agitation and there are no more scandals ever again in Hollywood. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, it all went away. I feel like, yeah, the, I think the next layer after the conversations we started to have around Me Too are thinking about like, okay, 
So if we're trying to get the most egregious sex criminals out of places where they can harm people, what else might there be? (laughs) Right, right, right. And I think, again, you're just speaking exactly to the heart of what drove me to write this book. I was actually, I was texting a friend. I actually found this text chain a little while ago. And I was texting this friend, like this sort of like the burn it down, like another thing, you know, like the ranting kind of thing. And I looked at those texts and then I texted my friend. I said, I said, I think this is a book proposal, you know, because a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, I began to get this sense that people thought, well, we did it. You know, we, we, we nailed it. We nailed um, the sex pest stuff. So good job, everybody. And I just was like, what? No, what did what are we talking about here? You know, like if if the bar to clear was like some serial sexual assaulters were removed from some situations for a while (laughs) and maybe one high profile one went to the slammer, given the prevalence of misconduct in this industry, that's not nearly enough. That's not I mean, really. And part of it was driven by something that other people have heard, and I certainly have heard, and I put this in the book. When you talk to people and they themselves say, or their reps or their PR or their lawyers say, but he wasn't a Weinstein, I'm like, okay. (laughs) The bar is so very, very low. (laughs) So if we're saying a criminal, well, he wasn't Ted Bundy. I'm like, okay, but (laughs) also there can be other things that are bad that are not, you know, a multi-state crime spree murderer. Thing. And and that's why I love that you get into the story of Scott Rudin so early in the book, because it's a really great counterpoint to the kind of Harvey Weinstein story that we're used to. Mm-hmm. And and his victims, of course, were never abused A-list actresses. It was truly frightening to me to delve into all the Scott Rudin profiles I've done over the years. And by the way, I hope in the book I make it clear, I don't view myself as aside from and apart from the veneration of norms and even people that was problematic. You know, I think I was very much part of that. But there was this reflexive move in all of these, this coverage of Scott Rudin for years and years and years that was glamorizing that. And I'll tell you a story for free uh, that's not in the book. I once had an off-the-record lunch with an executive, really good guy. And part of the reason we had the lunch was because he worked for Rudin at one point. And he like, and you're like, you want to hear the horror stories, you know? And it's, you know, it's like kind of meeting someone who's, you know, they grew up in a cult commune or something. Like you want to like, oh, what's the dirt, you know? And so I wanted the dirt. And I, I realized that that, like, I understand the reason for that interest. But there was so much veneration of this kind of behavior. And how many movies have we all watched where, even from like the 30s and the 40s, um, the 50s and beyond, the producer is always this guy chomping on a cigar, screaming at others, chasing the secretary around the desk. And that's funny. <laughs> um, so there was a very kind of smart and subtle, overt, covert series of methodologies by which Scott Rudin or Rudin-esque behavior was the part of the mythology, the founding mythology, the the bedrock mythology of Hollywood that 
Well, unless you scream at people and make them feel small and, and replaceable and worthless, then you cannot make a motion picture or a TV show. And I, it's funny because there's this, there's kind of that tradition in journalism too. Like this, yes. the editor who comes into the city room and screams at people. And I have had, I've been around people like that. And I'm like, why? No, no one works better. It's not. It still thing. rarely makes anything better. Um, and, and, and I definitely feel like that's the case in the book world too. And, and, and a similarity that I, I find really trenchant is that most people go into these jobs knowing that they will encounter abuse and that it's like good for them, they, they, it, that it will build a thick skin or that it will prove to the world that they belong in this creative industry. And um, seems like that's a great thing to uh, stop doing. <laughs> well, it's it's proves you can take it. And I think a really useful paradigm for me that I used kind of mentally as a, as a framework throughout the book. So imagine, you know, an abuser has many strategies by which they keep people locked in a cycle of abuse, you know, gaslight them, isolate them, make them think it's good for them, make them completely revolve around the abuser's needs and wants and violating anything that they don't want is, you know, this massive crisis. So you, you slowly but surely um, radically change how everyone around that abuser operates when everyone is in this very sick system. I think if you just take that and make Hollywood the abuser, that's really what it is. It's basically um, a lot of abusive dynamics are baked in. And I have to be very careful in how I talk about this stuff because some people I really care about and are wonderful people and have fought the good fight to have it not be like that. You know, I talk to them in the book and there's a lot of people like that. But unfortunately, this industry that somehow I think successfully and very smartly implanted in our minds that like this is a better group of humans. This is a more enlightened group of humans because they are in pursuit of illuminating the human condition. They care about art. They care about storytelling. They care about creativity. All these things that as a culture we venerate. This, but this industry, the commercial Hollywood industry that we venerate for those reasons, is it better than Amazon warehouses? Is it better than a fast food job? Is it better than Uber? Or, you know, I would argue, you know, if my child were to go get a job as a checker in a grocery store, they would be less likely to encounter abuse than if he went to go work as an assistant for a Hollywood producer today. And that's a sad, that's really sad. It's, it's, and I, I think I really hope to, you know, hold a lot of space for the people that are doing the good work and trying to change things, but it's from a toxic set of norms. And that toxic set of norms is exactly what you just said, that if you are not willing to put up with inappropriate behavior, misconduct, abuse, psychological abuse, vindictive behavior that could end your career any moment. You just don't have what it takes. And that's that's crazy. Like, that's still crazy. And I actually was hoping, I'm really glad that you brought up publishing. And now I have a little bit more of a window into that for part of this book writing process. Um, the Purple Collins Union was on strike, and that's a strike I fully supported. 
Um, and I'm glad that they achieved their goals and their goals were so modest. They're so, the goals were so modest. And and that's what you say in the book too, about Hollywood assistants, like they're putting up with all of this stuff on top of the fact that they're not making much money. They often have to have a second job. Mm -hmm. They work extreme hours. Uh, many of them have to be available at all times to, Mm -hmm. to their boss. And it's like, what are we doing here? Are you saving people's lives? <laughs> like, are you exactly? And that's you know, it was really important to me um, to write about someone like Kevin Graham Casso to write about people who have left the industry. Kevin, you know, unfortunately, is no longer with us. And I spoke to his brother, and you know, if if I'm honest, what I am hoping to do is make people understand that it's not just that we're venerating people who have harmed, damaged, and bullied and abused others in a multitude of ways, you know, criminally and just morally. Um, We've driven out people who could be a force for good, you know, and some people who are forces for good have hung in there. But as you say, it's at a cost. I I literally cannot think of one person who has not had a terrible work situation, if not multiple terrible situations, because... And again, I actually think, I think this applies across a lot of creative industries, fashion, Mm -hmm. architecture, photography, um, whatever influencing is. I don't really under, you know, I I sort of know what that is, but like anything where there's a high degree of gatekeeping and it's very hard to make a living that's perceived as creative music. um, It's, there's so much of this that goes on and when you have a very, very tiny elite tier of people who could end your aspirations on a whim because you did not get them the proper kind of sore latte, that isn't great. You know, and I, I think that's, it's interesting to me to just bring the strike into it a little bit because I think part of the reason the strike is happening is because people have spent the last 10 years, you know, social media has many ills, but it's allowed people to connect with each other and create a different narrative. And I think that's been made all the difference having covered test strikes. There's no question that's one of the really different. You lay out so many of the reasons, like I know a lot of people are talking about AI right now, but you lay out some of the reasons why this writer's strike feels different. And you predicted this (laughs) perfectly. Um, I read the galley of your book. And so, um, you didn't know what was going to happen, but you speculated. Yeah, that. and that's, that was hard to get right. I'm so glad that you said that because I just was like writing this, you know, parts of it a year ago. And I was actually revising some stuff on potential strike actions well into like January. Um, but everyone, you know, a huge part of writing this book was realizing midway through it that I was writing two books really or like you know taking on two different things yes i was calling out an industry history of exploitation abuse inappropriate behavior and all of that but the industry itself was undergoing yet another series of wrenching changes that made people unable to even earn a living at all and so i everyone i spoke to we would talk about a potential strike and the more i talked to people like basically what i knew from behind the scenes from various contacts was there was, you know, a contract ended in 2020. 
understandably, the Guild does not decide to go out on strike when people were already, you know, shows were already shut down due to COVID. And there were so many other things happening at that time. Um, but what you had by this year was at least six years of the continuation of a series of massive, massive shifts in the industry. And the frustration level that I was hearing from people, and I'm hearing from people every day now, it's just unbelievable. And it just, you know, it is someone who fought really, really hard for 20, 30 years to make the industry more inclusive and to shine a light on the fact that it wasn't, despite its much vaunted rhetoric around the topic, you know, essentially what they did was they did open the gates wider but made it so that fewer people could earn actual money. So you could, you know, people who are trying to establish a foothold now or ascend the ladder now, the ladder just doesn't exist in the same way and it may never exist in the same way again. And so I realized, I really, I think I always wanted to do something about exploitation as a concept within the industry. And that can be on a personal, you know, sexual moral level but it, uh, and the financial level i never the financial part of it was never far from my mind but the past few years there are so many people whose work you know who whose work i know who are not making it and they are taking other jobs and they have to depend on a spouse for support or a life partner or whatever and the amount of financial heartache out there adding to all these other stresses is real so i i pretty much I thought probably a strike would happen. I always thought that. And not just because of that level of desperation, but look at who the streamers are. Like who the AM, I always say it wrong, AMPTP. It's not a very happy acronym. Like it's just some, it doesn't roll. <laughs> no, up. it doesn't roll. Up. Um, they are now a different group than they were. You know, the last strike, which was about 15, 16 years ago, you know, it's it's companies who were, not primarily, not only they had theme parks, they had other stuff, but they were primarily in the mid business of making TV and, and film. Do you think Apple cares if they right. don't have new TV? You know, Apple's still going to be Apple. And Amazon's priorities are very different from, say, you know, NBC Universal's. You know, they all, they are the, they're a very disparate group. Um, they don't appear to value creativity in the same way in the sense that yes there was always stuff that wasn't that good but they want content they want they want, they want content volume they want a large volume of content if some of it's good that's great if a lot of it's basically it it, it exists and that's about the best thing you can say about it <laughs> you know so so I don't know what, you know, do they care about TV, Amer the American TV and film industry? Do they, do they care about that existing? Or are they just going to keep importing shows from abroad, movies from abroad and to keep going? I genuinely don't know. So I just thought a lot of people are hurting and have been hurting. These companies are a very different, you know, in many cases, a different in different spots or different kinds of companies. And I just don't think that they're going to be real flexible <laughs> for sure and and then the other thing that you do on, in the book that i have now seen as an infographic <laughs> in in other situations is you talk about the salaries for the chief executives mm -hmm. of, of these yeah. companies yeah and that really gets into like how interchangeable the the entry level is for them 
that they make such enormous amounts of money and are so unwilling to part with any of it to to make right. anything just a little bit better. I do think that I was thinking about this earlier today that, you know, like they could actually put on false mustaches and twirl them. Like that would be the only step to go further to make this a more cartoonish <laughs> industrial tycoon villain story. But like it's so it's it's crazy that in 2021, you know, I, I have in the book um that David Zaslav in 2021 made 3,600 times more than the average assistant at Warner Brothers. And what I didn't put, because I just didn't want to get too bogged down, I know that numbers can sometimes start to make people's, you know, heads spin. But numbers do help. They can make it real. The thing about that stat of, you know, 3,600 times what assistants make, that's predicated on the assumption that the assistants work every week of the year, which most don't now. Right. A lot of people went from working 50 or 40 or you know, 45 or 38 weeks a year, or, you know, if they were on a 13, 12 episode show, like, you know, 30 weeks a year or something like that to now working five weeks a year, 10 weeks a year, maybe during, you know, some awards show stuff or this or that, putting together all these much smaller gigs. So realistically, you, it's, it could be that it's even more uh, in terms of, and if you say, if you want to say, oh, you're cherry picking, well, you know, the two heads of Netflix made in the realm of $50 million. And this is a company that's trying to combine multiple entry-level jobs into one. Again and again, this comes up when you talk to people who work with Netflix. And it's like, you know, I don't think of an industry as in a healthy state. You know, there's all these stories about, you know, warehouse workers and Uber workers or, you know, these sort of gig workers, you know, having to like pee into a bottle and just that and the other. I don't think, you know, Hollywood, please take a close look at yourself when your entry-level workers are trading ideas on where to sell their blood plasma. Take a close look at what you're doing because that's not a realistic way for this industry to be a healthy environment. Just financially, if you can't afford food, this is going to affect your workday. Wouldn't work be so much better if... Not even one person was worried about what they were going to, whether they could afford to eat dinner that night. That's just, no, uh, I mean, the thing is, you we're, we're talking here and I'm never, I've never lived in LA. At various times, different employers have been like, come live in New York or come live in LA. And I'm like, you do know what you're paying me, right? Like, that's how <laughs> would you expect? And this was, you know, I, 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 I could have moved to LA, but it's gotten so much more expensive to live there that I just, it's it's bananas to me that a lot of like again i think part of the reason i wanted to do the book is i don't want to get bogged down in like well this person ran this set poorly or that like yes right. i do go to scott root and i do go into some cases some case studies if you will and i think that that was important um but at the same time you know the bigger picture is that this is just not a sustainable model for anyone it's not working for a lot of people and that's that needs to be taken into account um, much more forcefully by the people who have the most power. And the people who have the most power are studio heads. There's a small cadre of people at the top of these big corporations. They're making millions. And like the characters on Succession, they are largely insulated from the, 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 the discord and the distress of many people who work for them. 
but I can be loud and I can yell. And uh, that was my goal to, to yell, <laughs> yell a bunch. You do <laughs> righteously, righteously. Um, and, and I do, I love putting burn it down next to Claire Dieter's book monsters mm-hmm. because I think you both circle the idea. I mean, not circle. You both very much deal with the idea that for too long we've uh, we've revered creative people in a way that excuses their behavior, not just excuses it, but um, enables them to be worse. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we venerate it. We've we have venerated abusive behavior that is just straight up inappropriate, not okay, and. We can't, we, I can completely, I have not read Claire's book. I've read, I think, almost every review of it. I really want to dig into it because I, it's something I think about a lot. You know, I'm not telling anyone what to like and not like. And to, to some extent, I've thought about writing on those topics. I'm glad that she did because I'm trying, how can I say this respectfully? I think what she went into was a really interesting question and an unnecessary question. I personally wanted to explore a slightly different territory, which was, Yes, as consumers of these stories and as fans or as people who maybe know people, how, how, however we interact with commercial Hollywood, we can all be part of these conversations and we can all make these determinations. We can decide not to venerate men like, you know, Harvey Weinstein or Scott Reed or whatever. Um, but it, I kind of wanted to put the spotlight where for a hundred years, these big companies have successfully you know, pointed the spotlight away from them. Who was actually enabling this? You know, if I'm honest with you, here's the thing. I've said this to friends and I'll say it to you. I got tired of writing bad man stories because if I could just tell, like, they're, they're just so repetitive. I did, I felt like I was in a hell loop at different times. You know, oh, well, the, we went to HR and they did nothing or they, you know, gave him a little slap on the wrist that he, then he doubled down. And much. And not to say that, you know, people of other genders can't be terrible because it's, no, it's an equal opportunity environment in some places for everyone to be not great. But I kind of was like, all right, so something that comes up a few times in the book is when I ask large corporations, at times multiple representatives, PR people, you know, dozens of people. Can you tell me what you're doing to prevent situations like this in the future? How are you training people? What have you done about this situation? There are a number of times in the book where no one replied to me, not even with a no comment. Maybe once in a while I get a no comment. So to me, that's that's absolutely wild. I wanted to talk about, okay, but who's enabling this shit to go down first place and who's still turning a blind eye in some cases and still unwilling to engage with a journalist asking legitimate questions okay fine you don't want to talk about that person can you at least answer my broader picture questions about um conduct consequences training monitoring what are you doing to prevent bad situations and to create good situations and nothing crickets and so, Maureen, about two-thirds of the way through your book, we take a turn. And as you mentioned many times in the book, obviously, there are no easy solutions. There isn't a course you can take. 
There isn't um, someone you can hire to make everything all better, but you you lay out some first steps. And I'm wondering if you could even just talk about how you found the experts you found um, who who consulted for you about kind of like what justice looks like for victims. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you brought that up because that chapter, I'm like, what does it actually mean to change the culture, to change how we respond to bad situations, to actually make meaningful amends and reforms? I'm so glad you brought that up because I think, you know, Hollywood is very much people want to appear like they're doing great. Like everybody in life wants to appear like they're doing great, but especially in Hollywood, there's this performative element of like, I've mastered this. Um, you know, that the, the performance of mastery, the performance of being chill. But I think in a lot of cases, when I get real with people in the industry, they just don't know. They're like, well, I, I'm not sure what to do, or I feel uncertain in this situation, and what should I do? And I wanted to allow some space for the fact there are situations where we, it's, it's, it's hard to know, and no one is telling us, no one is helping us. So really, um, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, she was like first on my list. Because she was writing all these things online and for different publications about forgiveness. What is a real apology? When should you do an apology? What should you do in addition to an apology? And I was like, yes, this is information I can use. You know, it's, it was helpful to me as a person. So I knew I wanted to talk to her. And then she connected me with um, Kyra Jones, who's a screenwriter and actor and had been through a restorative justice process, as I go into in the book. And they both were fascinating to talk to. And then I asked someone who's an expert in the sort of therapeutic community or like, you know, knows about all the therapy, I don't know, knows, knows the world of the professional mental health experts. And that person connected me to Bo Travis, who it was so weird to just like drive down the street and then meet up with him at this grocery store that has a cafe and sit outside in the sun and talk about his work with people who'd been convicted of sexual crimes. He's the nicest guy. Very upbeat, very energetic. I could not do what he does. It's, it seems very stressful to me. But I was actually interested in asking all of them, what do you think is meaningful in terms of changing systems? and helping survivors, and even helping perpetrators. And I, so, so those are the three people that once I had talked to all three of them, I was like, well, now the challenges meld all of this into a narrative that makes sense. So I hope I got this through, or I hope I made this message clear that there are people that can be helped and can change. For some of those people, it's going to be a very difficult road and it might not work. And while they're on that road to change, they must be monitored or ideally not in a position of power over other people. And finally, this is one thing that I will soapbox about this all of the live long day. So cut me off if I go too far. There are people in the entertainment industry because of these veneration, this veneration we've talked about and these bad norms we've talked about. They do not think they're doing anything wrong. They think they're acting okay and or they don't care. Or Mara, sometimes they're just sadistic people and they like hurting other people and they will never admit it. 
to themselves, to the world. We can't necessarily go by what people say. We have to go by what they do. Hollywood is very uninterested in saying to itself, in looking really hard at the truth that you have implanted within your communities a number of people whose actions indicate that for whatever reason, they like damaging, harming, or being awful to other human beings as a pattern. And that they are not interested in changing and are not even willing to accept that as a reality. So like there are all these gradations and that's why I kind of put that disclaimer. Like I can't tell anyone what to do in a specific, like here's the one size fits all thing that will work all the time. I don't know. This person, when you go to them and say, you've been engaging in a pattern of negative damaging behavior and here's how you can end it. Maybe they will. Or maybe they'll mime that they are sorry about it and then keep doing it. And so I feel like the guardrails just have to be much stronger and there has to be an allowance of the possibility that some people, when they get power, want to or like to use it for bad reasons. And all of like it, a juice cleanse is not going to stop them from doing that. Yeah, I, I and it's, oh. it's hard to. Although I was wondering if in, in when you were talking to Damon Lindelof about how awful Lost was for so many of the people who worked on it, I found it open ended whether he was taking the message to heart or was completely oblivious to all of the suffering that was going on. Yeah, I, 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 that was such a hard chapter, right? It was really hard. Um, there were, there were a few that were just, just stood out for, just for the reporting that was required to, I don't like the word fair. I don't know, just to, to be thorough, I guess is the word I would use to be thorough. And then, you know, something that I'm very conscious of having done this kind of in-depth reporting on difficult or toxic situations is that know 20 or 30 or 40 people might share really difficult things with you and a lot of times i'll end up talking to people for hours or you know we'll talk and then we'll do fact checking and then we'll talk more and that was definitely a thing that happened with the book so i'm always indebted to the people who are willing to engage with me and so but but i also feel this massive um dare i say crushing (laughs) um feeling of how how can I be thorough and bring a take to this situation while being while including everyone's voices in the ways that make the most sense and that they like because you know if I if if I talk to someone for three hours about a difficult work experience they had we're not always talking about terrible things that happened you know oh this coworker was great and you know this set visit was excellent or whatever. You know, people have a lot of varied experiences. So you're trying to essentially weave together a lot of facts, a lot of subtlety, a lot of nuance. And that's really the reason to do a book. Um, I I think the yeah, you're right. The lost chapter, for me, it is still open-ended. For other chapters, it is still open-ended. I don't I, I think basically in a lot of situations as as regards the book and things that I explore in the book on a lot of fronts, actions will continue to speak louder than words. And I cannot tell people what to think about Sleepy Hollow or Lost or Saturday Night Live. But I, what I'm trying to do also is to 
do my own form of amends. You know, I participated in a culture that venerated showrunners. I 100% did that. I participated in a culture that, you know, my generation of critics, when we were coming up, a lot of coverage in the mainstream media, sort of like before or around the time, like television without pity and other sort of blog formats were taking off. A lot of it had been, um, you know, Rita McIntyre has a new show, so let's interview her. And she seems great. Like, I'm not saying don't interview her. But with my generation of critics, as the narr- especially as the narratives got more complex and more ambitious, it's like, well, let's go straight to the source and talk to the showrunner. And I'm going to say the Vince, name Vince Gilligan, and I'm going to say it only in the context of I've only ever heard good things about Vince. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to, if anyone is sad about Vince Gilligan, I've actually known him for going on 30 years because I met him in his little tiny office on the Fox lot when he was a junior writer on the X-Files. And he's been the same sweet Virginia guy ever since. And and again, he's actually one of my bits of ammo of like, I, I think Vince seems to have done okay not being a toxic monster or a creep. So I don't know. Why don't we do that thing? You can do it um, too. You can you can also do it. But yeah, the whole thing was like, let's talk, let's talk to the showrunners and you know, they're the auteurs of and of course, you know, the best showrunners were always telling us again and again. There are hundreds of people working on these shows, artisans, craft, persons, crew, actors. Like there's so many voices. Um, but we did that thing that Claire Dutter said in the interview, which was venerate, you know, the star individual as being, you know, this godlike being or this um, worthy of being put on the pedestal person. And I'm trying to go back and you know if, if you look at the lost chapter I, I really i was really glad that my editor and you know let me do it the way that i did it which was damon lindelof and carlton hughes controlled the narrative for much of the narrative around lost for 20 years and i wanted other people to give their part of the narrative too and and by the way again i had some of the best conversations of my life for that chapter because the people that work for that show are smart as hell. They're funny. They're really sharp and with it. And so it's interesting to me because every so often someone's like, oh, it's interesting when you talk to Cuse and when you love to. Well, of course I was going to do that. Like, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I try to be. Yeah, I think it, there was never going to be a version of any of these things where, you know, there are some cases in the books where, you know, or in, in, in other stories where people just don't get back to me or don't want to talk to me or that's fine but there have been so many interested in instances in my career where people are just telling me radically different things about sometimes the same incident so i understand multiple points of view it makes it very difficult to write something reported <laughs> but but i hopefully gave people enough of the information to recontextualize Scott Rudin, recontextualized Lost. You know, my generation of critics has, has in many ways, you know, we are or were creating the record. You know, many of us went on to write books and, met, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of what we all did. Like, I feel like, you know, when people were like, TV, is it as good as film? Wait a minute. It's, is it, what? It's so good. And we were like, yeah, it is. It was so cool. It was so cool to be on the ground for a long time. Feels like a question like, um, can women be funny? <laughs> <laughs> so we we kind of 
you know, I think we help move the ball down the field in terms of the prestige of, you know, the storytelling that was that many of us consume over much longer periods of time and have a, a even greater for me anyway, emotional, psychological investment in. Um, so we did that, but I'm like, okay, well, I need I need to I need to go back and add other voices to the mix. I need to go back and reanalyze what actually occurred. Um, and I, you know, I think the last chapter is definitely going to make noise, but I think the sleepy hollow chapter was as important to me. And again, there was a, there's a piece of me that there's, there's something that occurred late in the sleepy hollow chapter and I won't give it away here. Spoilers. Yeah. But, you know, I felt like by, by not talking publicly about, you know, a specific piece of communication that I got from us, from, from a representative for a show, I felt like I felt like that was my piece of complicity. You know, I, I didn't know for years, to be honest with you, I didn't know for years how to go about telling that story in in my own. I mean, whether or not we think the word complicity is too strong. You know, I was the chief television critic at Variety while these things went down. Then I went back, obviously, you know, over the next several years after I left Variety, talking to people who worked at Sleepy Hollow. And now I understand a lot more like what happened and why it happened and it doesn't make me happy you know I, I i think it's part of the reason i wanted to write about you know you could sit there and go well you know lost was x number of years ago or sleepy hollow was x number of years ago or scott rudin's been out of the business supposedly i mean i guess do we know that for sure or you know harvey's been gone for blah 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 yeah but like it's not like all this stuff happened 50 years ago and the norms and the expectations that were formed 50 or 80 or 30 or 10 or 20 years ago, they're still around. 100%. Um, I'm going to stop you there only because we're running out of time. Um, but this was so wonderful. Thank you so much. And before we go, sure. um, can you please recommend a couple of books for us? Yes. Um, Kashana Kali is someone who I first noticed on the Twitter and then, you know, I always thought she was incredibly funny and, you know, an instant retweet. She would always like in like 18 words, like find like the funniest possible or the most devastatingly funny, not funny take on something. Um, and then I saw that she was writing a book and then I bought it and I read it on my vacation. It's so good. The survivalist is so good. And I think, and we talk about a balancing act. She takes a romance a personal journey, a friend, friendship journeys, and like a kind of a subculture um, examination and balance all of those things so well. And I just thought, <laughs> I feel a little bit like, too, like we were both looking at Twitter as it was engulfed in, you know, this long, slow slide to not greatness, which is, you know, to be fair, it's never been great for some people, but like, oh, cool. People with their first books coming out in 2023, we were both kind of like in that same boat of like, well, social media is like, it was like, wow. So yeah, I felt a little bit of kinship there. Um, another book series that like, I'm a hardcore sci-fi fan nerd. I, if there's something, maybe a little bit slightly less so fantasy, I do read a fair amount of fantasy, but like science fiction, character driven, especially if you write it, I read it, I will read it. And um, Martha Wells' Murderbot series. Mm. 
so good. It's like, do you ever have an experience where you fall in love with the voice of a narrator on page one? She's, so she wrote four novellas and then a, a big novel and then another novel I think is coming. And I'm like, you know, insta buy, make it happen. I need it now. But read, read them all in order in Murderbot is probably my favorite science fiction series in a, you know, one of my favorites for sure ever. And I, I, it's very funny, but I think what Martha's so good at is like getting at the heart of these very humane concerns and ideas and questions, but in a, in the, in the context of very snappy, smart, funny science fiction, which is my thing. Love it. Uh, Maureen, thank you so much. Burn It Down is out now. Yay! Thank you for having me. I had the best time. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.